God, it's good to be reminded again today that you are God and we are not, that you are the one who gives us life, that you are the one who puts our very breath in our lungs. God, it's good. It's good to remember that we are your creatures and you are our creator, that we are your children and you are our father. Lord, that you supply our needs, that you preserve our life, that you uphold us by the word of your power. And Lord, this morning, we just want to respond appropriately to what it means to have you as our God, to know you as our God, to have you as a father who cares for us and provides for us. God, we just want to lift up our hearts to you, to worship you and praise you. And we're thankful, Lord, for the promise, the promise that you will save a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Lord, we can envision that day when we're standing before the throne of the Lamb with people, myriads upon myriads of people, and we're singing praises to the Lamb who was slain for us. God, we are so thankful that that you love us, that you save us, that you rescue us, that you bring us into your family. And so as we open your word today, God, we're just hoping for a glimpse of you. We, We just want to see you clearly. God, we're asking that you would rip open our hearts Allow us to to feel and know and truly receive the fullness of your grace. To enjoy fellowship with you, to enjoy God being here with you today. Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do. Come and move powerfully through your word among us. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Uh, As you're taking your seat, uh, two things. One, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 118. And then secondarily, if you are a child who's been checked in, at this point you can stand up and head to the back. And if you uh, are a child here or a family with a child here that hasn't checked in, you can still go do that in the back. Uh, Guys, today's an exciting day. We're launching another phase of what we're calling our full family ministry plan Uh, A few months ago, about four months ago, when Jenna North took over as our kids' ministry director, she had this dream, she had this plan that our kids' ministry would just be more and more aligned like a family in the life of our church. And so we've we've been doing some things. The first big step in that is that every single week, our kids are learning the same exact truths from the same scriptures that we are covering in here in our sermons. And so if you didn't know, every week we're, we're giving you on the, on the bulletins that we hand out, there's a question at the bottom. And so if you want to begin to talk to your kids or your grandkids about what they're learning, it, it's connected to what you're going to be hearing in, in the sermons. Uh, but then the second thing is starting this week, uh, now every single uh, morning at both services, at the beginning of the service, we're going to be inviting kids into this room with us so that they can worship with us, so that they can see their parents and other adults that they respect in the community lifting up their praises to God and worshiping their God and, and something we're really excited about. And so uh, I just would, would invite, invite you to consider uh, praying over th- this transition uh, just maybe adding that to your prayer list, this full family ministry plan that we have. There are some logistics to figure out and some different things like that, uh, but with something we, we're really excited about and something we're committed to. And so we invite you to, to put that on your prayer list and just be praying over our, our kids' ministry here at the church. So today, uh, Psalm 118 is where we're going to be. We've already heard it read, uh, and then we heard our, our kids sing uh, part of it uh, this morning, but we're just going to be walking through Psalm 118 together today. Um, You can find people uh, all over the world today, on every corner of the world, that will tell you that gratitude or thankfulness is good for you, is good for you. Uh, Here's an article I found published in Harvard Health. It says, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel, feel more positive emotions relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. So here's the deal. It is actually a proven fact that thankfulness is good for us. But here's the question we have to ask. Who exactly is it that we ought to be giving our thanks to? Who's on the other side of our gratitude? Who is it that actually gives us life? Who is it that actually gives us all the good things that we experience, that when we feel that sense that we ought to thank someone, who is it over there that we ought to be thankful for? Uh, Author Brendan Manning once wrote this. He wrote, Gratitude arises from the lived 
perception, evaluation, and acceptance of all of life as grace, as an undeserved and unearned gift from the Father's hand. This quote connects grace and gratitude. In other words, we give thanks whenever we've received a gift. But the real genius of this quote, the most helpful thing about this quote, is that it pushes us to consider that all of life is grace. That we've just been singing about the very air we breathe, the the food we eat, the people that we enjoy, everything about our life is a gift that we did not deserve. And so Manning is drawing out the fact that gratitude arises in us, that thankfulness arises in us when we get a moment-by-moment lived acceptance that everything I'm experiencing is grace. To say it positively, we grow in gratitude as we see more and more and more of the grace of God that is poured out into our lives. To put it negatively, the only reason that you and I don't live in constant thankfulness is because we don't clearly see God's constant grace that is being poured out into our lives. I recently heard one of my friends uh, tell the story of realizing that he needed glasses. Uh, He went to his uh, first semester of his freshman year of college and immediately began to fall behind. And so at the end of the semester, he came home just feeling like something wasn't right. Uh, He sought out medical attention and eventually miserably failed an eye test. Uh, He just, according to his own story, he just thought that all televisions were blurry. He just thought that the the words in the books that he was reading were always difficult to, to understand. What he didn't know is that for almost 20 years of his life, he had been living blind to the world. Now, here's the deal. The reason that you and I aren't more thankful, aren't walking in constant gratitude, is because we are too blind to the riches of God's grace. A psalm like Psalm 118 that we see this morning, the point of it is to fix our vision. It is to pull the blinders away so that we can actually see the depth and the riches and the abundance of God's grace in our life, that we might come to the place like Brennan Manning is talking about, where we see that actually all of life is grace, that thankfulness and gratitude might erupt out of us. And so we're going to be looking at six things from Psalm 118 that give rise to gratitude. Six things. Uh, The first this morning is that we give thanks for God's love by delighting. We give thanks for God's love by delighting. Um, The first and last verse of Psalm 118, which was also the first verse of Psalm 107, which is why it was our memory verse for the last 13 weeks or so, says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Uh, This one single verse is a great summary of the heart of Christianity. And here's what I mean. On the one side, this verse tells us who God is. God is good, and it tells us what God has done. God has set His love upon sinners like us. And then on the other side of this verse, the reason this is so helpful is that after telling us who God is and after telling us what God has done, it tells us how we are to respond. That the correct, appropriate response to what God has done is thankfulness. Is gratitude. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is a great summary of Christianity. Uh, as we've been working through this series uh, over the last 13 weeks or so um, that we've titled The Steadfast Love of God, uh, there's something funny that I've noticed as we've been working through it. You know, you know time and time again over, over these weeks, starting with Psalm 107 all the way to Psalm 118, we've been invited to give thanks, to give thanks for God's love. But see, that's kind of funny. Uh, when you and I go to somebody else and we say to them, I love you, what we're not expecting to hear in return is thank you. That's kind of weird. That's kind of odd. See, when I say I love you to somebody and they say thank you in return, what that tells me is that they do not have reciprocating feelings. Uh, if I were to tell my wife later today, I love you, 
and she were to say thank you in return, that would mean that she is still mad at me and she is not ready to say I love you yet. When we say I love you, what we're normally wanting to hear is I love you back. So why is it that this section of the Psalms has been calling us to give thanks? That when God says I love you, the appropriate response is thank you. Well, the reason why is because his love is undeserved. His love is not what we are owed. His love is a gift of grace to us. That if we were owed God's love, if it was what we would deserved, then when he says, I love you, we just say, I love you back, and that's that. But if God has come to people who don't deserve his love, if God is not equal to us, but he is our superior, and yet he has still come down and said, I love you, then yes, the appropriate response is, thank you. Thank you. I don't deserve your love. And so thank you for it. So how do we give thanks for God's love? Well, we give thanks for God's love by delighting in it. You know, someone gives us a gift and we grab it and we just set it off to the side and We never think about it again. Maybe don't even open it out of the box. And it doesn't show a whole lot of gratitude. But when someone gives us a gift and we we immediately open it and we cherish it and we talk about it and we use it all the time, it, it displays that we're thankful for what we've been given. And so fundamentally what it means to to be thankful for the fact that God loves us is simply to delight in it, simply to rejoice in it. And that's why verses two through four give us this sort of repetitive excitement. It says, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Why? Why the repetition? Why do we say again and again and again, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. Why? Because that's how we celebrate it. That's how we delight in it. That's how we show our gratitude for it. When we just revel in the fact that God has set his love on us even though we did not deserve it. Uh, now, last week we began to talk about how God's love then leverages, leverages all of the other good things that he has on our behalf. And we just started with one thing. We talked about faithfulness. We said if, if God loves us, if he, if, he, if he has sovereignly set his love upon us, then we can know that he will be faithful to us. So the rest of Psalm 118 flows out of the love of God. All these other things that we're going to be talking about, they come to us because... God loves us. And so we're going to see different facets of how God loves us, and then we're going to see different ways that we respond in gratitude to how God loves us. And so second, today, we give thanks for God's security by remembering. We give thanks for God's security by remembering. Verses 5 through 9 say, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, This psalm begins to show us what difference does it make if God loves us? What difference does it make if God is on our side? And the first thing he points to is is a common biblical metaphor of refuge. That to be in God's love means to have God as our safety, as our security, as our protection. Um, Last week uh, on July 4th, uh, I don't know about you, but around 10 o'clock on Tuesday evening, it felt like a war zone in my, in my neighborhood. You know, there was just literally rockets going off in every single direction. And look, I'm not a grump, but fireworks just aren't really my thing, okay? You know, I, I'm the kind of person that when I get to 50 years old, I want to be able to see and I want to be able to hear. And so while, while there's some people in my family that, that want to get as absolutely close to the action as possible, and they basically want to be exploding alongside of the fireworks, I'm somebody who likes to seek refuge, I'm somebody who likes the safety of my couch. Uh, I'm somebody who, if I am going to watch fireworks, the only place I'm going to watch fireworks from is in my car, where there is a buffer between me and the exploding things that are going to burst my eardrums. 
So what is a refuge? A refuge is anything that you and I turn to when distress enters our life. Or here's another way to say it. Anything that you and I turn to to keep distress from coming into our life. So think about it for a second. Just just pause and think about your own life. When something comes in that's aggravating you, something comes in that causes turbulence in your life, what's your first step? Where do you turn? What are you hoping will protect your life, secure your life? What are you hoping will keep you buffered from the turbulence? Well, the psalmist is, is saying, look, the only thing that can truly be a refuge, the only thing that can truly keep us safe is God. And so it's better to trust in God than, than even in, you know, he's using these terms, princes, even in people who are powerful, even in things that are mighty, even in things that seem to have importance. No, only God can be our refuge. And this morning we're celebrating the fact that, that God is our refuge. And if he's our refuge, then three things are true. Here's three things that are true. If God is our refuge, if because of his steadfast love, he gives us safety and security. Here's three things that are true. The first is this, nothing can get through us, get to us, excuse me, nothing can get through to us that does not pass through him. Nothing can get through to us that does not pass through him. So here's, here's your life. I want you to imagine your life. And here you are, you're, you're totally encased in God. He is a shield all about you. So that means if anything actually gets through to you, it must pass through him first. He's your refuge. He's your security. He's your protection, which means he is a shield about you. But that leads to the second thing. Secondly, if if it's true that whatever comes to me only passes through him, then it means that he will only let pass what is for our good. Now, what, what that doesn't mean is that the only things that pass through to us are good. That's not what that means. It's not that the things that come into our life are always good, but it is that God only allows things into our life that are for our good. And then the third thing, and this is probably the most important, that if God is our refuge, if he is our security, if he is our safety, then ultimate triumph is certain. Verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Guys, there's nothing in this world, there's nothing else in this world other than God himself that can secure ultimate victory for us. Listen, we're tempted. When when turbulence comes, when life gets crazy, we are tempted to look for refuge in all sorts of things. We are tempted to look for refuge in money, in love, in success, in other people. We are tempted to run and try to find safety in anything and everything. But what this psalm is teaching us is that ultimately, all of those other things that, that we seek refuge in, they will eventually let us down. They might seem to give us security for a little while, but in the end, they won't secure victory for us. Here's how to think about this. What do you call it when your team is winning for almost the whole game, for three and a half quarters, your team is winning and then they lose in the fourth quarter? You know what you call that? Losing. And what do you call it when your team is losing for the entire game? I mean, three and a half quarters, you're down. Three and a half quarters, the other team's ahead, but then you end up winning in the end. What do you call that? Winning. So the only place that we find ultimate security, ultimate refuge, is whatever is going to give us eventual final triumph. That's the only thing. And what this psalm is helping us understand is that there's all these other options. There's all these other things that maybe for a little while, they will make us feel secure. Maybe for a little while, the money I have or the people around me or the love that I seek, maybe for a little while, I can feel like I'm safe. But eventually, the only thing that can carry me through life, and here's the kicker, through death, is God himself. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the only place where we can find ultimate refuge, knowing that he's got our soul secure and that he has promised to even resurrect our bodies on the last day. So what does it look like to be thankful for God's security in our lives? 
What it looks like is to be living in a constant state of remembrance. Thankfulness and remembrance go hand in hand. So many times the reason we run after false security, the reason we run after other refuge is because we have forgotten who God is. We've forgotten His faithfulness. We've forgotten all those times in the past that He's come through for us. And maybe most especially, we've forgotten what it says in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. Who He is, what He's done in the past, and most especially that He is with me. And so we run to other things because we've forgotten. But when we live with this lively remembrance of gratitude, that's what Brennan Manning was talking about. When we get this lived acceptance of who God is and His grace in our lives, when we remember, when when we're moment by moment remembering who He is and, and what He's done and that He's with us, then we could actually join this psalm and say, I will not fear what can man do to me. So God's love brings us under his protection, his security, and we express our gratitude for it by living in this this constant remembrance of what he's done. Third, this morning, third, we give thanks for God's strength by recounting. We give thanks for God's strength by recounting. Uh, Verses 10 through 13 say, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So the psalmist was surrounded. He he was outmatched. The psalmist had gotten to a place where if he had only had his strength, he would have fallen. He would have failed. And yet he ends in victory. Here he is. He's done. He's outmatched. He is overpowered. And yet... He ends in victory. And so here's here's the opportunity he has. What's he going to do? Is he going to take credit for it? Or is he going to give credit where credit is due? You know, at the end of almost uh, every uh, sports game or whatever, whether it's, you know, anything from tennis to golf to uh, baseball, basketball, whatever it is, at at the end of the game, you know, the reporter will pull aside one of the MVPs of the the game and and they'll start asking questions. You know, how'd you feel? And what was it like? And how did you do it? And in those moments, you sort of immediately find out a lot about who these people are, right? Is the gut reaction, is the first thing out of their mouth to talk about themselves and to talk about how great they did and to talk about how everyone doubted them, but how they overcome? Or is the first thing out of their mouth to give thanks, to thank God, to thank their family, to thank other people around them? Are, are they taking the credit or, or are they putting credit where credit is due? That's where this psalmist finds himself. And in verses 14 through 17, we see his heart. So here's his chance. He's just succeeded. He's just had a victory. What's he going to do? Verses 14 to 17, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. See, here, here's the cool thing about the Bible. A lot of times the point that's, that's trying to be uh, driven across comes through the, the, the symmetry of the, the text. That we look at how it, it was arranged, how it was put together, and it helps us understand what the main point is. Well, three times in, in verses 10 through 13... The psalmist says, I cut them off, that all these people were around me, and, and I did this. I won. I had victory. I had success. Three times he says, I did it. But then he turns around in verses 14 through 17, and three times, where does he put the credit? Who does he say brought him through? He says, it's the right hand of God. That, yeah, I did it, but it, I only did it because he did it. <laughs> Yeah, I succeeded, but I only succeeded because God's power was flowing through me. Yes, yes, I cut them off, but I cut them off because there is a strong right hand holding me up. And so you and I, we may not find ourselves in the exact same situation as the psalmist, right? But we all face challenges all the time, right? We all get to a place where we feel our weakness, we feel our neediness, we feel how frail 
the human existence is. I would say that uh, verse 13 is a pretty good description of all of our lives. The first half of verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. Isn't that life? (laughs) Outmatched, overcome, fatigued, weary, needy. I was pushed hard and I was falling. There was nothing I could do. This morning we're celebrating the love of God. We're celebrating the fact that God leverages all of his goodness on our behalf. And so what that means this morning, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've turned to the Lord Jesus, then your story will be the fullness of verse 13. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. But the Lord helped me. That will be the story at the end. I was pushed hard. I was outmatched. I did not have what it took. But, but, there's a right hand that's being leveraged on my behalf. The Lord helped me. So what does it look like for us to give thanks for God's strength in our life? What it, what it looks like is what it says in verse 17. For us to recount the deeds of the Lord. For us to get good at boasting in God. We all have a choice, you know. And, and the reality is, you know, when a microphone's put in your face, you know, some, some of us are smart enough to say the right thing. You know, when the public opportunity is given, we're smart enough to say, oh yeah, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. But the real question is, in our heart. Really, in our hearts. Who gets the credit when we've had some success, when we've exercised our gifts, when we've seemed to feel like we've done a better job in life than the other people around us? Deep in our our heart, who really gets the credit? Do we see that every good thing we've ever been given and every good thing we've ever done only comes to us because God is working in and through us. That whatever gifts we have, whatever sets us apart from other people, Paul, the Apostle Paul asked this way. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? What does he mean? He's saying, point to something in your life that isn't actually a gift from God. And if, if you can find something, if you can point to something, if you can find anything that you can point to to say, this wasn't a gift from God, then by all means, boast in it. But if you can point to your life and you can say, every good thing about me is actually owing to him, then we ought to tell the story, recount the story as a victory that God has won. Highlighting his strength, his power, his love. So God's love in our life means that he pours out his strength and the way we Give thanks is that we recount his deeds. We recount his wondrous deeds. Now, it's at this point in the psalm where it takes a bit of a shift. It's almost shocking. It almost feels like when you're reading through Psalm 118 that you get to verse 18, and it almost feels as if someone's copied and pasted a line from a different psalm that has nothing to do with this and just slammed it right in the middle of Psalm 118. It just feels so out of place. It's so unnatural for someone who's so excited about God, so excited about God's love, so excited about what God has done for him to turn to the theme of discipline. And so forth this morning, we give thanks for God's discipline. By submitting. Verse 18 says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. See, the fact that God disciplines us is actually just another proof of his love. That God's discipline in our life doesn't show us that God is against us. No, God's discipline in our life shows us that He is utterly for us. If there's anybody in the room who has the responsibility of 
training other people in discipline. If, if, if you're maybe a, a teacher or a coach or a parent, or you have any role that, that it's your job to carry out discipline, you know that it is very hard work. It is very taxing to carry out discipline. And the reason why is it takes very acute attention and it takes constant movement, constant action, constant correction. It is very hard to carry out discipline for somebody else. Now, I don't want you, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Nothing is hard for God. It's not like it's hard for Him to bring about discipline in our life. But here's what we know. If God is disciplining us, if He is taking the time to shape us and mold us and carve us out even through what we might feel like are difficult circumstances, this is what we know. We know that His eye is on us. We know that He sees exactly who we are and He he knows exactly how to make us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That He is moment by moment at work in our life, not wasting a second Because he is committed to making us glorious. He is committed to making us beautiful. He's committed committed to bringing us not just back to the state of our original creation, but back to that state and better. Because we will be made into the image of the glorified Jesus Christ. So does God's discipline feel good? No. No, it doesn't feel good. But it absolutely shows that he loves us. That he's committed to us that his eye is on us, that he has our best interest in mind, even when we don't have our best interest in mind. And so how do we give thanks for God's discipline? Well, it's a little bit different. It's not this cheery, you know, uh, bopping around, singing, happy because God is disciplining us. That's not exactly what it looks like. But what it does look like to be thankful, to, to be grateful for his discipline is to humbly and quietly submit to it to humbly and quietly receive the discipline that he brings into our lives. See, when we, when we grumble and when we complain, what we're really doing is we are actually kicking against God's own plan for our life. When we grumble and complain about the difficulties that we're experiencing, we're basically looking at God and proudly saying, I don't think you know what you're doing. But aren't we thankful That he loves us enough to actually push through our grumbling and complaining, to push through our own feelings that we know better, to bring his fatherly wisdom down upon us because he knows what we need. He knows exactly how to love us. And that's why in a psalm like this that's all about God's love, that's all about God's grace, it's all about what God's doing for us, it actually makes a lot of sense that right in the heart of it, right in the middle of it, is a celebration of God's discipline. It's him loving us. It's him showing us that he's intimately involved in our life. And so we express our gratitude by quietly and humbly submitting to it, walking through it with him. Uh, Fifth, today, we give thanks for God's salvation by entering. We give thanks for God's salvation by entering. Verses 19 kind of comes right off the heels of verse 18. And verse 19 through 21, it says... Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The sense we get from the psalmist is that he's just experienced God's grace in such a fresh way. He's just received this gift from God that he just has to go and find the Lord. He's got to get into the house of God. I don't know if you ever received something from somebody or you you found out that somebody did something for you and just immediately uh, you just have to go and you just have to give that person a hug. You have to look at them and say, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I can't believe that you would do that for me. That's exactly what we see in the psalmist. He's just received an unfathomable gift and he just has to get into the presence of God. But what in particular has him so ready, so excited, so eager to get into God's presence to express his thanks? Verses 22 through 24 say, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What the psalmist is doing is he's saying, okay, he's putting God's salvation in sort of construction terms. 
He said, everybody who was in charge, all these people that were the big, you know, construction people who were supposed to be making all the decisions, they looked at this one stone and they said, "Mm, you know, I just don't think we can use that. I don't think that's going to work for us. And they set it off to the side. And then God came along and he said, watch this. And he takes that very stone that was set off to the side, that very stone that nobody wanted, the very stone that was rejected, and he implants it as the very cornerstone of salvation. That God is in the business of taking things that are weak, insignificant, things that are rejected by the world, and he is in the business of taking those things and working them out for our salvation. And all throughout the Bible, we can see this at play, where God takes these weak and insignificant things and he works them for salvation. But all of those times throughout the Bible, all of those uh, miniature times, miniature salvations that God accomplished on behalf of his people, they were all pointing forward to the one great ultimate salvation that would be accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that's why when we get to the New Testament, uh, multiple times throughout the New Testament, and even on the lips of Jesus himself, we have Psalm 118 quoted, and the author saying this verse about the stone being rejected that has now been made the cornerstone, this is actually about Jesus. See, God's Savior, Jesus Christ, he was sent into the world. He was sent to his own people. He was sent to the people who had been promised a Savior, and yet they rejected him. They looked at Jesus, they looked at God's gift to the world, and they said, nah, we don't want you. See, they they were hoping for a salvation, but they were hoping for a salvation from Rome. They wanted a Savior who would come and deliver them from their oppressors. They wanted someone who would come and make their life better. And Jesus came preaching a very different message from God. Jesus looked at them and said, you think that the deliverance you need is from Rome. You think that the the deliverance you need is from the oppressors around you. But really, the deliverance you need is from yourselves. You are the problem. Your hearts are wicked. You are guilty before God which is a way more fundamentally detrimental problem than any person. You're at odds with God himself. And that wasn't what they wanted to hear. They wanted a political savior. They wanted a different Jesus. But this is the the wonder and the majesty of God. That it was through their rejection of him, through setting him aside as an unwanted stone, that God brought about salvation to the world and established him as the very cornerstone of life itself. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter was preaching to some of the very same people who had 40 days earlier crucified Jesus, been part of crucifying, condemning and crucifying Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter was saying, he was looking at the people and he's saying, Jesus came to you, your Savior came to you, and you rejected him, but you don't even realize that in rejecting him, you are actually following God's plan. That as you are rejecting the Messiah, it was actually through his rejection, not in spite of his rejection, it was through his rejection that God was going to save you. 
And that's why a few verses down in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 38, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and believe every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That day, 3,000 of them put their faith in the very Savior whom they had rejected. Forty days earlier, they had said, we don't want you, and, and yet it was through their rejecting of him that God saved them. That is the marvelous work of our God, taking what is rejected, taking the stone that was rejected, and then bringing it back to life and inserting it as the very cornerstone of our salvation and of our life. God, guys, there is no other way to be reconciled to God, but through Jesus Christ. There is no other way for our sins to be forgiven except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to experience eternal life except through Jesus Christ. And this is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. So how do we give thanks? How do we give thanks for the salvation that God has accomplished? I want to just think through this carefully, okay? Hmm. If what God has done for us through Jesus is that He has opened up the way to Himself, that if what He's done in showering us this grace, showering us with this grace of salvation, is that He has reconciled Himself with sinful man, then what it looks like for us to be grateful is to run into His presence. It is what we see in this the psalmist. It's what we see in verse 19. It's open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. If God has opened the way, if God has allowed a sinner like me to come into the gates of righteousness because of the righteousness of Christ, then for me to stay outside, for me to say, ah, I see what you've done, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep my distance. For me to see that God has opened the way to him and to say, I'm going to hold back, is the height of ingratitude. But what it means to be thankful to what it means to be grateful is to say, where are the gates? Where's the house? Ah, if God has opened up the way to himself, then I'm running in. That if God gave, sh showed me his grace yesterday, he's showing me his grace today, and he's going to show me his grace tomorrow, then every single day is a day where I run into his presence with thanksgiving, with gratitude. And yes, partly, this, this is me talking to people who aren't, aren't believers yet. Maybe you're someone who's not a Christian, and there you are, and, you, and you, you're hearing what God's done for you. You're hearing about this salvation that he has brought about through his son, Jesus Christ, but, but there you are, standing on the outside. No, I'm saying, in response to gratitude, as in a thankful heart, go running in. But it's not just to unbelievers. It's not just to people who aren't Christians. It's also to us who know to us who know the way has been opened, to us who have a relationship with God, and yet at times we wake up and think, I've got other things to do. I've got more important things to do. My life's busy. See, we're blind. We're blind to His grace. If what life is about, if what God has done in giving us His Son, Jesus Christ, is bringing us back into relationship with Him, then there is nothing more important than enjoying our relationship with Him. Nothing more important. I don't know what's on your priority list. I don't know what you feel like is important. I don't know what strangles in on you and makes you think that this just has to happen. It's not as important as knowing God. It's not as important as communion with Him. It's not as important as fellowship with Him. And let's be honest, we're all convicted by that. But here we are this morning, and, and what God is doing is he's drawing us in by grace. He's saying, look how marvelous this is. Look how wonderful this is. Look, look at what I've done taking the stone that was rejected and implanting it as the cornerstone. Come to me. Run through the gates. Enter in. Don't hold back. I'm here. I love you. So let's go into him. Let's enter in. And finally this morning, finally, we give thanks for God's blessing by devoting. We give thanks for God's blessing by devoting. Verses 26 to 28 say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you 
from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Uh, If you were to summarize kind of one word or one phrase, what we are all after, what we long for, what we wake up every day going towards, what's on the target for our life, Uh, a a good word to describe that would be blessing. That we want things to work out for us. We want people to like us. We want to feel good. We want our life to just sort of work out. And so we run after, we work after, we strive after the blessed life. We strive after trying to find blessing. And yet, if we're all honest, it is so elusive. We strive and we strive and we just want life to work and it just doesn't. But then here's Christianity. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it comes in and says, God actually gives us his blessing, not by us trying to get it, not by us running hard after it, not by us striving and striving and striving to figure out life. God actually gives us his blessing as a free gift in his son, Jesus Christ. That what it says here in verse, 28, verse 27 and 28 that His face, the light of His face is shining upon us. Guys, that's actually what true life is about. See, we get this blessed life thing wrong for two reasons. One, we get it wrong because we try to run after it in our own strength. We, We think we can achieve it. But the other reason we get the blessed life thing wrong is we actually define it in the wrong way. That what the true blessed life is, is knowing God, is God giving us Himself. It is living under the acceptance of God and resting in Him. And we don't have to earn that. That comes to us as a free gift from Jesus Christ. Uh, When you think about the world, uh, there are pretty much two, two opinions out there about how we are motivated. What motivates people? Uh, The one option is the stick. And the other option is the carrot. So what is the stick? Well, the stick is, you know, you get, you get prodded, you get poked, you maybe even get whacked into doing what you're supposed to do. That, that, that pressure is applied so that you move forward. But the other option is the carrot. You know, the, the, the reward is dangling out in front of you. There it is at the top of the mountain, and you're just supposed to run after it. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ totally breaks the paradigm. The gospel of Jesus Christ says Christianity is not about the stick. It's not about us doing the right things because we're afraid that God might whack us. And it's also not about a reward. It's not about thinking that life's blessings are up at the top of the hill. And if I can just figure out how to run to the top, then God will give me what I want. No, that's not Christianity. Christianity is God brings his blessing into the lives of sinners as a free gift. And the reason God is not concerned that we might be turned into spoiled, rotten children is because there is something more powerful than the fear of consequences, and there is even something more powerful than the opportunity to achieve rewards. And that is gratitude. That Christianity is not the stick and it's not the carrot. It is grace and gratitude. It is God saying, I'm going to give you my blessing first. And then us responding. And he knows, God knows, that if we truly understand his grace, if the blinders get ripped off and we understand just what it means to be loved by him, we will give everything. Not because we're afraid of the consequences if we don't. Not because we're hoping that he might give us what we want. We will give him everything because he's already given us everything. We'll sacrifice everything because he's already sacrificed everything for us. We will give him our whole life as a sacrifice. Because he's poured out his love and grace upon us. That's why, verse 27, this is such a fun way for this psalm to end. The psalmist says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You know, I've never sacrificed an animal. I don't know what that feels like. But I can't imagine that I would be that excited about it as this guy is. You know, to run in there and and cut something open and blood everywhere and smelling terrible. I don't know. I mean, there's probably a few of you who are weird and that would be your thing. But for the most of us, for the most of us, Sacrifice is a scary thing. Sacrifice feels like 
it's un- unpleasant. But what this psalm is teaching us is that when God's grace hits our heart, when we see what he's done, the marvelous works of the Lord in his son, Jesus Christ, then sacrifice becomes exciting. Sacrifice becomes the most obvious thing to do. Sacrifice is just a reflex. So what what was Psalm 118 all about? Psalm 118 exists to fix our vision, to clear the blinders away, to help us see that we think God's grace is important, but if we could only see from God's perspective, it's way more important, it's way deeper, it's way richer that what it means to be under His steadfast love means that we have life with God forever. So this verse, this final verse, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This crystallizes Christianity. This is our faith. It's who God is. He's good, and He pours out His love upon sinners like us, and it's how we respond. If you want to know, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? What does it mean to walk with God as a Christian? Here's the one word, gratitude. Respond to the gift. Respond to the one who's given you everything. That's Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, your grace is a bottomless ocean. Even as we think we're doing things to earn or achieve or strive, we we actually learn from your word that we're actually just falling deeper and deeper and deeper into your grace, that every achievement, every success, every good thing we've ever done, it's actually come from your hand. And so, Lord, this morning, we just want you to press it in deep, Lord, press it in deep that the reality of your love might grab us, that it might capture us, that it might own us, that we might be able to say, you are our God and we give you our thanks. You are our God and we give you our heart. Lord, would you truly, by the power of your spirit, help us to know the depth of your love and your grace for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 